The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Hello, everyone. And thank you once again for listening to the saga of World War II, Acasa's Belly Project. So the wait is finally over. I'm back. It was a long year, and I'm sorry I wasn't able to produce anything during that time. I just didn't have the bandwidth. Thank you for those of you who messaged me during that time, asking about the show. And as promised, it's getting off the ground again. Albeit a little later than I anticipated. For those of you listening in the future, there obviously is no gap. This is just the next one in the queue. So to you I say congrats on not having to wait. Anyway, where were we? We've gotten to early 1944 in Europe and covered the Battle of the Atlantic and the Air Campaign. So now we will once again turn our gaze to the Pacific. But first, we'll take a short pause over the United States. As soldiers, sailors, airmen, and marines were battling it out everywhere from Sicily to the Solomon Islands, the average American was still at home. And what was life like for those servicemen overseas when they weren't locked in deadly conflict? What changes were occurring as a result of all the effort being put into toppling the German and Japanese empires? To answer this question, and others, let's begin episode 41, Overpaid and Over Here. I have been astonished that Japan should in a single day have plunged into war against the United States and the British Empire. What kind of a people do they think we are? Is it possible they do not realize that we shall never cease to persevere against them until they have been taught a lesson which they and the world will never forget? Like every other nation locked in the global struggle in 1944, the United States had become a warfare state. Unlike the people of almost every other nation that had mobilized for war, however, the average American suffered very little. Unlike the populations of the United Kingdom, Japan, the Soviet Union, or any other Eurasian country, the civil population of the United States was not subject to marauding enemy armies or aerial bombardment, or even significant shortages of goods. The isolation provided by the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans along with the great bounty of the American interior, meant few were ever really under threat of enemy action or privation. In fact, the war heralded recovery from the Depression in America. The enormous demand placed on industry by the war effort provided employment for every able-bodied American. By 1944, unemployment had fallen to 1.2%, and American factories produced more than half of all war material in the world, and that only accounted for about 50% of American productivity. The other half still went to producing consumer goods. With 16 million men serving in uniform, most of them in their prime working years, there was a substantial crunch on labor, driving up wages. The average weekly wage rose from just under $25 in 1940 to a bit over $45 in 1944. 
This, of course, drove consumer demand, which, when confronted with rationing, created a thriving black market. In the United States, rationing was administered by the OPA, the Office of Price Administration. The nominative goal of the OPA was to prevent price gouging on goods, particularly food, caused by wartime-induced scarcity. In hindsight, the OPA probably was a bit too blunt of an instrument, and its efforts led to some rather predictable economic responses. Regardless, its first target was rubber. After Japan conquered the Dutch East Indies, the empire had a near monopoly on global rubber production, leading to a lack of car tires in the U.S. One response by the OPA was to ration gasoline, the rationale being that less driving would lead to less wear and tear on car tires, thus reducing demand for them. It's unclear whether this had a noticeable effect on rubber demand, but it certainly led to gas shortages. In the summer of 1942, gas stations ran dry, and lines for the pump stretched around city blocks. The OPA also set shoes in its sights, limiting each person to three pairs of leather shoes per year. Any other pairs would have to be made from alternate materials, like cardboard or fabric. This was still mild compared to rationing in the UK, where each person was limited to only one pair. Of course, this was meant to ensure that enough material was available to manufacture boots and uniform items for servicemen. Then there was food itself, which received extensive rationing. Sugar was one of the first food items to become scarce. After the fall of the Philippines, one of the main sources of sugar was cut off and a general lack of excess cargo space made importing it from the Caribbean difficult. What sugar was available was diverted for military use, first meaning overall sugar consumption dropped by roughly a third for the duration of the war. More catastrophically, coffee was subject to severe rationing. The shipping squeeze affected Brazilian coffee just as it did Caribbean sugar, making it difficult to import to North America. All kinds of substitutes were implemented, but none really made up for the real thing. If people could have grown sugar and coffee in their own backyards, I'm sure they would have. What they could grow themselves were fruits and vegetables. Shortages of labor, particularly on the west coast in the Imperial Valley, saw produce prices rise rapidly. This led people to resort to victory gardens to supply their own needs. Everywhere from factory cafeterias to city windowsills became sites for small, sometimes not so small, gardens growing the basics like corn, tomatoes, cucumbers, and the like. Eventually, this homegrown produce would account for 40% of all vegetables grown in the United States. Of course, one of the chief reasons for this labor shortage on the West Coast was the internment of 80,000 Japanese Americans who raised a full third of all produce grown on the West Coast prior to the war. Japanese internment was doubtless pointless and counterproductive. There isn't a shred of evidence that any Japanese Americans were working as agents of the Japanese Empire, and those Japanese who served in the armed forces did so without blemish. While fruits and vegetables are relatively easy to grow at home, meat is not. For that, Americans were completely reliant on the market. Despite record high levels of production, 25 billion pounds a year, meat remained scarce. The military took 6 billion pounds right off the top for its own consumption and for lent lease. The remainder went to the market, where each person consumed 164 pounds of meat annually at pre-war levels. That left a deficit of about 3 billion pounds. Soon substitutes were found, including horse meat, muskrat, and rabbit. But for those that could afford it, the black market offered prime cuts at premium rates. Simply buying illegal meat on the black market wasn't the only option, though. For the savvy grocer, there were tricks to getting around rationing. One was tie-in sales, in which high-end meat was sold along with lower-grade cuts, as well as entrails and organ meats. Predictably, 
With all of these black market shenanigans, someone would be left without, and unfortunately, it was relatively low-paid blue-collar workers. Coal miners and lumberjacks, who necessarily require a diet heavy in protein to feed their back-breaking labor, were among those whose ration didn't provide enough protein, nor did they make sufficient money and wages to simply buy more on the black market. With all of these behind-the-curtain transactions and ration skirting, it was the OPA that became the villain. People didn't blame one another for skirting regulations, but rather blamed the regulators. After all, for the most part, the black marketeers were otherwise law-abiding citizens. They were neighborhood grocers and butchers, people who had always been a part of the community, and their customers were everyone else. If the butcher offered you a deal on some low-grade meat and threw in some finer cuts, you didn't see him as a criminal, but rather as a friend offering a service. In truth, the OPA's 3,100 investigators had very little power anyway, and the fines they can impose were fairly weak. That isn't to say there was no actual crime. Smuggling and cattle rustling became problematic, to the point that full-on gun battles erupted in the West over cattle herds. Despite the economic hardships put upon the general population, morale was high. The sneak attack on Pearl Harbor lit a fire in the chest of even the most pacifist and isolationist Americans. No longer could they sit idly by while the world burned. Of the 34 million men who registered for the draft, only 42,000 identified themselves as conscientious objectors, most of whom were Quakers and Mennonites. That was a mere drop in the bucket of the total serving population. Of the 16 million men who served in uniform, 11 million went to the Army, including the Army Air Force, 4 million to the Navy and Coast Guard, and 670,000 to the Marines, along with 200,000 women auxiliaries. What's more, only a minority of those who served in the war did so in a capacity that would have them face enemy fire directly. For a war so all-encompassing, there were only about 290,000 battle deaths, 234,000 of which fell in the army. The number increases to 400,000 if all causes are included, meaning things like accidents and mishaps. To put that number into perspective, it is less than the number of battle deaths incurred by the American Civil War. It wasn't just morale and patriotic spirit that brought these men, and some women, into the services. It was the benefits as well. The United States compensated its soldiers very well. At the beginning of the war, a private's pay was only $21 a month. However, this was increased to $60 a month by the end. This doesn't include various other benefits that could be accumulated, like hazard or jump pay. The U.S. Congress also passed the GI Bill of Rights, which provisioned generous benefits to separating servicemen provided $20 a week for the first year after leaving the service, provisioned $500 million for veterans' hospitals, and probably most impactfully, provided $500 annually per soldier in tuition assistance. Congress seemed to understand that a solid foundation in technical skills would yield economic and national security dividends after the war. American servicemen were compensated so well, it became a bit of a point of contention with Allied personnel. As American forces built up in Britain from 1942 onward, they began to interact with the local population. When the first American soldiers of the 34th Infantry Division debarked in Belfast in January of 1942, the arrival of relief was more than welcome. Since the fall of France, Britain had essentially been holding off the Germans on their own. With the literal arrival of America into the war, Britons were happy to receive their allies. With the soldiers came more than just guns and ammo, though. They also brought money, appetites, and energy. When not in the field training, soldiers would have weekends off to go out into town or visit cities where their disposable income could rub allied servicemen and the population at large the wrong way. 
A whole battalion of soldiers on weekend pass could drink a whole village dry of beer. Thousands of young men in prime condition with plenty of cash, an American staff sergeant made as much as a British captain, allowed them to assume a position of social dominance, especially with the local women. About 60 to 70,000 British women wound up marrying American servicemen by war's end, and an estimated 9,000 children were born out of wedlock to American fathers and British mothers, a number I think might be underestimated considering over a million Americans passed through the country during the wartime years. The determination that the American soldier was overfed, overpaid, overdressed, oversexed, and over here was perhaps a bit harsh, but reflected well the resentment that some felt towards the American presence. The War Department was not blind to some of these cultural differences, and issued pamphlets and notices to help remind soldiers that they were guests in the country and to be mindful of local cultural norms. The bottom line for this material was essentially that it is always impolite to criticize your hosts. It is militarily stupid to criticize your allies. The American presence in Australia had similar unintended consequences and byproducts. Early in the war, Winston Churchill made the decision that British troops would not be dispatched to help defend Australia, but rather Australians would be utilized to bolster defenses throughout the empire. This caused the Australian Prime Minister, John Curtin, to call on the United States for help. This was a bit of a scandal at the time, as Australia still felt a great deal of loyalty and closeness with the Crown in England. American troops began arriving in Australia just a few weeks before they arrived in Britain. On December 23, 1941, when the Pensacola convoy arrived in Brisbane with 2,400 soldiers who had originally been dispatched to the Philippines. This began an influx of servicemen that would be concentrated around Australia's three biggest cities, Sydney, Melbourne, and Brisbane, where 250,000 men would be berthed by 1943, preparing for operations in the Pacific. They would be joined by General MacArthur on March 21, 1942, when he arrived to establish his theater headquarters in Brisbane. Just as in Britain, American servicemen were relatively wealthy compared to their hosts, and their wealth was a point of both admiration and resentment. Again, American men found themselves in a dominant position when it came to courting the local women, which could rub their allied brethren the wrong way. Unlike in the UK, however, where Americans were considered a bit brash and uncultured, American servicemen were thought to be exceedingly polite and respectful, especially towards women, perhaps contributing to their romantic success. Though overall the relationship between Americans and Australians was positive, the tension and resentment between them did result in violence on at least two occasions. On November 26, 1942, the Battle of Brisbane erupted when an American military policeman detained an American serviceman in the street asking him for his leave pass. Military police often conducted and still conduct courtesy patrols to prevent soldiers from acting belligerent in public. The soldiers' Australian counterparts took umbrage with this and confronted the MP. As per usual, the MPs had a bit of an adversarial relationship with the rest of the soldiers, American and Australian alike. The confrontation between the Australians and the MP quickly grew out of control and escalated into an hours-long melee in the streets in which one Australian was killed. Similarly, Violence broke out between American and Australian troops on February 13, 1943, in Melbourne. Both events were suppressed in the papers in the name of maintaining good relations between the Allied governments. Despite these flare-ups, the American and Australian relationship was strong and has remained so since. Part of the reason there were so many soldiers resident in Australia and Britain was the high number of support troops maintained by the military. During the war, the U.S. military placed a very high premium on technical jobs over old-fashioned soldiering. 
the army had an enormous number of support troops for every frontline soldier. At its highest strength during the war, the army had 8.5 million men in its roles, but only 89 divisions. For comparison, the Empire of Japan fielded 100 divisions, and the Soviet Union, 300. If each division had a strength of 14,000 men, then a total of one and a quarter million men served in actual maneuver units. If Army Air Force personnel are subtracted, about 2.5 million, that leaves four and a quarter million men to support the 1.25 million actively engaged in combat. That's four support soldiers for every one in combat, and this assumes that every soldier in an infantry or armor division is actively engaged in combat himself. Unfortunately, due to the methods by which the United States military apportioned volunteers and draftees, the best and brightest were seldom sent to the infantry. Technical jobs routinely siphoned off the most intelligent and educated, while elite troops like Rangers and Airborne took the strongest. Worse, the army greatly underestimated how many men would actually be required to fight a grueling land campaign. Many divisions suffered over 100% casualties over the course of the war. Now, not every casualty was a fatality or career-ending, so some men became casualties more than once. But still, turnover could be very high in some units. To make up for this, the army needed a vast replacement system. Provisioning new privates to an infantry unit was one thing. Civilians could be taken off the street and transformed into soldiers in a matter of weeks, ready to take their rifle to the front line. Officers and non-commissioned officers are harder to mint on the fly, however. Among the officer ranks, some very young men could wind up commanding very large units, especially within the Army Air Force. The bomber crews suffered such horrific casualty rates that men in their 20s could find themselves commanding whole air wings. Chesley Peterson found himself in command of a fighter group as lieutenant colonel at only 23 years old. Most officers have barely been commissioned as a second lieutenant at that age. This is an extreme example. Exceedingly few men moved up the ranks so quickly, but it demonstrates the dire need for experienced officers. Among the officer ranks, the next man was usually moved up, so a battalion executive officer would simply become the battalion commander if needed, and eventually his rank would catch up. Within the enlisted ranks, promotions could come quickly as well, but other methods were used to fill more senior roles as well. After realizing it didn't have enough experienced infantry NCOs available to fill positions, the Army resorted to allowing NCOs from other branches of the Army to reclass. This had predictably poor outcomes. Men that had been perfectly competent and experienced sergeants in technical fields were completely unprepared to lead infantry squads in combat. Their experience had simply not lent itself to maneuvering under enemy fire. This lack of emphasis on standard leg infantry showed itself in the early part of the North Africa campaign. Large numbers of poorly trained, demoralized men surrendered at the Battle of Kesserine Pass, giving the Germans a dim view of American soldiers. This gave the Germans the impression that all American soldiers would be weak, ineffectual, and prone to surrender. Those soldiers have been poorly led and less prepared, however. The U.S. Army would quickly learn the tough lessons from this early campaign. The United States Army did have one unique advantage over the armies it faced, however, in the form of general mechanical knowledge. Whereas most German or Japanese soldiers had never encountered advanced machinery in their civilian lives, nearly every American serviceman had. Automobiles and tractors had become so ubiquitous that just about everyone knew at least some basic mechanical skills. If a German soldier's truck broke down, he was pretty much stuck until the actual mechanic showed up to fix it. American soldiers, on the other hand, had a fair shot at fixing simple issues. As we've discussed previously, the great mass of men pressed into service 
not just in the United States, but across the Allied war effort, demanded much in materiel. Stalin himself is said to have remarked that, quote, without American production, the United Nations could never have won the war, end quote. When war production reached its peak in 1944, American munitions factories produced as much as the combined enemy plus another half. American military aircraft production soared as well, from an annual output of about 2,000 planes a year in 1939 to just shy of 100,000 planes in 1944 alone. And again, this was only half of America's factories. The other half never ceased producing consumer goods. This massive increase in production did not simply happen organically, though. It required close cooperation between business and government to ensure wartime needs were being met. The OPA was just one arm of the vast array of agencies created to make sure the insatiable demands of war could be fulfilled. Among these were the sometimes redundant Defense Advisory Commission, Office of War Mobilization, War Resources Board, and perhaps most importantly, the Office of Production Management, which later became the highly influential War Production Board. At the head of the WPB, Roosevelt placed one Donald Nelson. Nelson was a chemical engineer by trade, but what qualified him for his position at the head of the WPB was his experience as executive vice president of Sears Roebuck, where he gained an intimate knowledge of American industry. By overseeing the production and purchase of the vast number of products offered by Sears, he gained the requisite knowledge to do essentially the same thing on behalf of the United States government. As head of the WPB, Nelson effectively became the country's industrial czar, though his agency never awarded a single contract or produced a single bullet. His immense power came from the fact that he was responsible for allocating finite resources and resolving industry-related conflicts. These could entail disputes between the War Department and industry, between industry and labor, and between two competing industries. One large point of contention for businesses was the loss of civilian market share. As factories were retooled from civilian use to military use, the company that owned them now lost capacity to produce whatever had been making there before, thereby losing market share. When the war ended, the same problem occurred in reverse. Everyone wanted to be the first to convert back to civilian industry to get a leg up on returning to the market. One of Nelson's many roles was in negotiating timelines for factories to convert between consumer and military goods. Nelson was immensely influential in getting the United States mobilized for war, and was a chief architect in making the massive industrial gains we've discussed. And those gains had benefits aside from getting guns, bullets, planes, and tanks to the front. As previously mentioned, workforce participation increased massively, and with so many men away, women had to step into roles previously denied them by their gender. With so much demand for labor, and so many men of prime working age serving the military, it made perfect sense to bring young, capable women into the workforce. During the course of the war, female labor participation increased dramatically. In 1940, about 14.5 million women were actively employed, but this number would increase by about 5 million by war's end, with one in three workers being female. It wasn't just young single women who entered the workforce either. By 1944, nearly three quarters of working women were married and half were over 35. Unfortunately, much of the progress made by women in entering the workforce during the war years was lost afterwards, when returning servicemen were given priority for jobs and women were encouraged to leave the workforce. The experience of large numbers of women working outside the home helped pave the way for later advances in women's rights, however. Black Americans benefited from the increased demand as well. Jim Crow still ruled the South, and generally racist attitudes pervaded American society, 
but the necessity of war helped to overcome some of that. Black unemployment before the war was double that of the national average, but with the onset of conflict, many more black people were able to enter the workforce, albeit at generally lower pay and lower skilled jobs. African Americans were also barred from service in the Marines, and initially the Army Air Corps. In the Army and Navy, the jobs available to them were restricted. In the Navy, only mess specialties were available, and the Army remained strictly segregated. The Army's segregation policies were so ingrained that they endured on foreign shores. In the United Kingdom, clubs, pubs, and bars, with no official segregation policy, effectively became so due to American influence and attitudes. Racist policies were so prevalent that white German POWs could be served before black American servicemen. A black soldier recounted being denied entry to a mess hall in Salina, Kansas, only to see a German prisoner admitted and served immediately after him. The demands of war and the eagerness of black Americans to serve helped to reverse some prejudices, however. Black civil rights leadership was able to pressure FDR into creating the Fair Employment Practices Committee, which investigated discrimination in industry. Though it did not end racial discrimination, it was a step in the right direction. Pressure campaigns also resulted in the Army Air Corps creating all-black units, including the now-famous Red Tails, a P-51 fighter escort squadron. The experience of black men serving overseas in a war purportedly for freedom helped spur the civil rights movement. All told, the Second World War changed American society significantly. Women and minorities entered the workforce and military in greater numbers than ever before, acting as a catalyst for future social change. The nearly insatiable demand for war material and massive increase in government spending effectively squashed the Depression, bringing America to its dominant economic position that it enjoys to this day. The war created massive military-industrial complex that persists into the modern era as well, and laid the groundwork for the transformation of the American economy in the second half of the 20th century. The suburb and the highway system came out of the war, and the GI Bill paved the way for millions of returned service members to attend college and get university educations. The enormous growth of the administrative state and the creation of various boards, agencies, and offices changed Americans' ideas about the role of government. Problems which in the past may have been up to the individual, community, or state were now seen as the purview of the federal government, and a genuine faith in the magnanimity and effectiveness of the federal government was instilled that would last for decades. In 1943, however, these massive changes were still very much in progress. The Nazi empire was at its greatest extent, and the United States was only beginning to beat back the Japanese from the periphery of their thalassocracy. In the Pacific, Guadalcanal had just fallen, the army was making its way to driving the Japanese from New Guinea, and the Upper Solomons were next on the docket. In China, too, the war continued, now in its sixth year. America and the world would still have much to bear before the fruits of their sacrifice could be enjoyed, and one man served as the guidepost around which all of this revolved, the American president. Franklin Delano Roosevelt, like many presidents before and after him, was a bona fide member of the American aristocracy, to the extent such a thing exists. The Roosevelt family first arrived in the Americas in 1648, when New York was still a Dutch colony, and remained wealthy, influential New Yorkers for the next two and a half centuries until Franklin was born. His father, James, was yet another installment of Hudson Valley Blue Blood. James Roosevelt was the very picture of cheroot-chewing, whiskey-drinking, bearded, late-19th-century gilded age excess. He attended Union College and Harvard Law, traveled Europe and the Holy Land in his youth, 
served on the staff of the American ambassador to the United Kingdom, future President James Buchanan. In 1863, Franklin's paternal grandfather died, leading James to inherit the family's wealth. In 1876, James' first wife died, allowing him to subsequently meet and marry the 26-year-old Sarah Delano in 1880. Two years later, on January 30, 1882, Franklin Delano Roosevelt was born. Born into a life of privilege, young Franklin never lacked for material possessions or the love of his parents. He was an athletic child who spent much of his time outdoors hunting, fishing, and sailing in the summer, and skating and sledding in the winter. It was on Campobello Island in New Brunswick, where his family summered, that he learned to sail, and his grandfather's docks at the Delano Estate in Fairhaven, Massachusetts, that he developed a love of ships and seamanship. As well as being physically active, he was an enthusiastic reader and stamp collector. He made his first trip to the White House with his father in 1887. James Roosevelt was something of a confidant of President Cleveland. As a young boy, Franklin was mostly educated by tutors, but at 14, he went away to boarding school, the Groton Episcopal School in Groton, Massachusetts. There, he performed well enough if he did not excel, and he was well liked by both his instructors and fellow students. Having graduated from Groton, young Roosevelt next went on to study at Harvard in 1900. Again, his charm and gregariousness carried him well, making him well liked among the student body. He was also studious, graduating in only three years. It was also while at Harvard that he met and fell in love with his fifth cousin once removed and Theodore Roosevelt's niece, Eleanor Roosevelt. So a very distant relation, they had a single common ancestor six generations back. Eleanor may have seemed a strange fit for the handsome, athletic, and popular Franklin. Eleanor's own mother called her Granny because she was such a funny child, so old-fashioned. And this was in the late 19th century. They were married March 17, 1905. The wedding was officiated by Reverend Peabody, Franklin's old headmaster from Groton, and attended by the president himself, Uncle Teddy, who reportedly said to Franklin, There's nothing like keeping the name in the family. A few months prior to getting married, Franklin had been admitted to Columbia Law School, where he earned his Juris Doctorate in 1907. Using his degree, he worked for a firm specializing in antitrust suits, but after two years became bored with it and decided to enter politics. Despite his uncle by marriage being the most famous and influential Republican in the country, Franklin decided to run as a Democrat in the New York State Senate, representing the three southeastern counties of mainland New York. Franklin took to campaigning like a natural. He enjoyed the chaotic life on the campaign trail and all the beer drinking, hot dog eating, and baby kissing it entailed. In the State House, however, he found himself at odds with members of his own party. He butted heads against the Tammany Hall machine, and his private school to Harvard upbringing made him seem arrogant to his fellow caucusers. His decision to back Woodrow Wilson sealed his fate with the Tammany Democrats, who endorsed Speaker of the House Champ Clark at the Democratic Convention. Franklin was in luck, however, because Wilson won the election, and his friend Josephus Daniels had been appointed Secretary of the Navy, leading him to pick Roosevelt as his Assistant Secretary of the Navy. Franklin was only 31 years old, and had made it to Washington for the first time. He may have arrived too young, for his ego swelled and he even developed a bit of resentment for his boss, who he regarded as a bumbling hillbilly who didn't know the first thing about ships or the sea. Roosevelt was quickly chastised by the Secretary of the Interior, Franklin Lane, however, who told him that if he couldn't be loyal to the man whom he owed his position, he should resign, and that instead he should study the man and learn what made him successful. So Roosevelt stopped mocking his southern accent and old-timey way of dress 
and instead tried to pick up on how well he managed to squeeze money out of Congress for the Navy. He still had not been humbled, however, because in 1914 he tried to challenge Tammany Hall in the election for U.S. Senate in New York. Roosevelt was roundly beaten, and realized if he couldn't beat him, he should join him, and thus made peace with Boss Murphy. It was around the same time that Eleanor hired a young social secretary named Lucy Mercer. She quickly became a key part of the Roosevelt household, and became friends with Eleanor, and Franklin. By 1916, Lucy and Franklin had begun a quiet romance, which continued for two years, until Eleanor discovered Franklin's correspondence with Lucy. The affair spoiled Franklin and Eleanor's relationship forever, but they agreed to remain married and Franklin to never see Lucy again. It also marked a turning point for both Roosevelt's. Her husband's infidelity led Eleanor to seek fulfillment outside of her marriage to Franklin, launching her own independent political and social life that culminated in her being the most famous first lady since Martha Washington. For Franklin, it seemed to have made him more serious and dedicated to his political career. With the Wilson administration and a stint as Secretary of the Navy drawing to a close, Roosevelt returned to New York and the rough-and-tumble world of campaign politics. He was selected to run as James M. Cox's vice president in the 1920 presidential election. They lost their bid to Warren G. Harding, but the exposure of a national campaign propelled Roosevelt to the national stage. Despite the failed vice presidential bid, he remained active in New York politics. But in the summer of 1921, disaster struck. The Roosevelt family was vacationing at Campobello. While out sailing, the family noticed a fire burning, so went ashore to try and fight it. That night, upon returning to the cabin, Roosevelt felt a bit under the weather and went to bed. The next morning he awoke noticing that his legs felt weak, and by evening he had developed a fever of 102. He had contracted polio, and would never regain the full use of his legs. For the remainder of his life, he would rely upon a wheelchair, or at least a cane and braces. He never accepted his disability, however, and fought it his whole life. Always an able swimmer, he took to the exercise more than ever, and developed a powerful chest and arm muscles, making him appear robust despite his handicap. He began vacationing in the waters of Warm Springs, Georgia, where he often swam in the mineral-rich waters, hoping they might offer some medical benefit. He also benefited from the discretion of the press. Though he did much to conceal his disability, journalists and photographers assigned to cover him certainly knew about his condition, but never published stories about it or used it as a political cudgel. His warm and gregarious nature certainly helped him keep the press in bounds, too. The man was apparently infinitely likable and used his affability to win the reporters over. Despite his affliction, Roosevelt continued his political career, and the American public had no inclination that he was paralyzed from the waist down. In 1928, he was elected governor of New York, which set the stage for him to assume the highest office in the land in 1932. Upon his election to the presidency, the march of the dictators abroad was relatively low priority. The effect of the Great Depression triggered by the market crash of 1929 were in full swing, and the first eight years of his presidency would be consumed with battling economic malaise. By the time the Second World War arrived with the attack on Pearl Harbor, Franklin Roosevelt was essentially an American institution himself. He had been president for 10 years already, and the levers of government were as familiar to him as the controls of his custom-made open-top Ford he drove when he visited Warm Springs. It's doubtful any other man would have been able to so effectively prepare the country for war, despite its own reluctance. But Franklin Roosevelt was the man in charge, and he put men like George C. Marshall in positions of power below him to ensure things were done right. So when war did come, 
the country was just about as prepared as it could possibly be, considering it was only just emerging from a decade-long economic crisis and deeply-seated isolationist pacifism. <laughs>